Thank you for downloading Crises and Kings with Rabbi Michael Hatton, an exploration of the Book of Samuel. This series is a production of Produce North America in partnership with the Corn Podcast Network and is lovingly sponsored by the Newstein family in memory of Rabbi Dr. Joseph Newstein for his fourth yard site. Be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening. And now, Michael Hatton. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our podcast on Sefer Shemuel. This is Michael Hatton in Jerusalem. Last time we discussed Shaul's visit with Shemuel, how effectively Shaul had embarked in search of donkeys, and by the end of the chapter had discovered that in fact he had been selected as Israel's first king. Along the way, a number of mysterious events that Shaul could not possibly have understood became clear as Shaul learned an important lesson that effectively, without the guidance of Shemuel, without the guidance of the prophet of God, he would not be able to be successful as king. Chapter 10 begins with Shemuel now anointing him. Shemuel took the jar of oil and he anointed the head of Shaul. Anointing the head with oil is a biblical way of indicating an important appointment to an important position. This is reported of Aharon and his sons when they became priests in the dedication of the Mishkan or the tabernacle. It is typically reserved for priests and for kings. So Shemuel anoints Shaul and he kissed him and he said, God has anointed you as ruler over his possession, over his people. Significantly, Shemuel does not use the word melech, king, when he speaks of Shaul's anointing and appointment. Some of the commentaries will detect something ominous in that particular choice of words, as if to indicate that perhaps Shaul's kingship will not be a smooth one and perhaps will not be a lasting one. In any case, Shemuel now offers Shaul three signs, as it were, that in fact this choice has been decided by God. When you leave me today, he says, you will meet two people. Those people will be at the tomb of Rachel. And when they meet you, they will say, the donkeys have been found that you were looking for, but your father isn't worried about the donkeys anymore. He's worried about you. What shall I do for my son? Shemuel says, you will go on and continue from there and you will come to Elon Tavor and there you will meet three people ascending to worship God at Beit El. One of them will be carrying three lambs, and one of them will be carrying three loaves, and one of them will be carrying a jar of wine. They will inquire about your welfare. They will offer you two loaves of bread, and you will take it from them. And then you will come to Giv'ata Elohim, literally the hilltop of God, and there the Philistines are stationed. And when you enter the city, you will encounter a band of prophets descending from the high place, accompanied by musical instruments, 
and they will be prophesying and you will be swept up in the ecstasy of their prophecy. The Spirit of God will come upon you and you will prophesy with them and you will be transformed into a different man. And when these signs come true, then you shall do what you shall do because God is with you. So effectively, Shemuel offers Shaul three signs. And as each one of these signs comes true, it dawns upon Shaul with greater and greater force that in fact, he has been selected as the king of Israel and this is the will of God. But if we look at the signs carefully, we discover that they represent a progression. And this is true even on the simple level of the numbers involved. In his first encounter, Shaul will meet two men at the tomb of Rachel. And in the second encounter, it will be three men. And in the third encounter, it will be a band of prophets. So the numbers are increasing. In the first encounter, the men will tell Shaul that father is worried about you and has ceased worrying about the donkeys. In the second encounter, the men will offer Shaul two loaves and he is to take from them. And in the third encounter, Shaul will be swept up in the ecstasy of the band of prophets and he will prophesy with them. Clearly there is a progression which is implied in these encounters and the commentaries explain. The first encounter, as it were, is about the past. The tomb of Rachel, by the way, it's indicated in this particular moment that the tomb of our matriarch was revered. Her burial place was already a site of pilgrimage more than 3,000 years ago, which is when Shaul is effectively active. Rachel died centuries before our story. Obviously, the location of the tomb, the tradition associated with its location was preserved such that when the people of Israel entered the land, it was recalled. And we see from our passage how the tomb of Rachel was a place where people would go. And that will be Shaul's first encounter. But a tomb is about the past, as it were, what is already buried and completed. It's another way of saying as Shaul now embarks on his new life as the king of Israel, he will have to cut the ties with his previous life. And even with his previous tribal affiliation, because he will no longer be simply a man of Benjamin, but the king of all the tribes. The worries, the donkeys, father's concerns, all of that have to be left behind. That's the significance of the first encounter. In the second encounter, the three men are ascending in order to worship God at Beit El. And of course, they bear gifts, sacrifices, offerings. Surprisingly, they will offer Shaul two loaves and he is to accept it from them, as if to indicate with Shaul now becoming king, 
the people will offer their tribute not only to God, but to him. And he must represent God in the story. So effectively, there is an implied transference. Some of those devotions will now be directed towards the king of Israel. That's the second encounter. And in the third encounter, it will be a band of prophets and Shaul will be swept up with them in a moment of prophetic ecstasy and he will be inspired. And by the way, the third encounter takes place at Givat HaElohim, the hill of God, which the commentaries identify with Kiryat Arim, the last reported location of the ark, as we saw earlier. But significantly, the verse tells us that is also where the Philistine garrison is stationed. As if to say, Shaul's rule as king will primarily be about relieving his people from the Philistine yoke. And it will be accomplished if he is inspired by God. So once again, the prophet-king matrix is reinforced. Shaul must join the band of prophets and be inspired by them in order to enjoy success. Or as Shemuel puts it, the Spirit of God will come upon you, you will prophesy with them, and you will turn into a different man. Shemuel offers a final piece of information. Verse number 8. You will descend before me to Gilgal, and I will descend to you in order to offer the burnt offerings and to raise up or sacrifice the peace offerings. You shall wait seven days until I come to you, and I will tell you what you must do. This last piece of information is particularly cryptic. You will go to Gilgal, says Shemuel, and you will wait for seven days until I arrive to offer the sacrifices, and I will tell you what you must do. But again, this is all an emphatic indication. Shemuel tells Shaul, your success will depend upon your willingness to be subject to my guidance. Go to Gilgal and wait. Wait for what? Wait until I come to offer the sacrifice because that's my role as the prophet and as the religious leader, not the role of the king. Again, we would call this in modern terms separation of church and state. It's not the role of the king to offer the sacrifices. It's the role of the prophet or the priest. And so effectively, Shemuel says, go to Gilgal and wait for me. And he doesn't indicate more except to say, I will tell you how to proceed. And that's the last thing that Shemuel says to Shaul. We note, of course, that throughout this encounter, Shaul does not respond verbally. What is he thinking? What is he feeling? Is not indicated in the text. But when he turned his back to Shemuel, 
and walked away, God gave him a different heart. And all of the signs came true. And only the third sign coming true is actually reported in the text that follows. Sure enough, he joined the band of prophets and he prophesied with them. And whoever saw Shaul in that moment was astonished. What has become of the son of Kish? Hagam Shaul Banivi'im? Is Shaul also counted among the prophets? This becomes a proverb in Israel. Whenever someone is engaged in an activity or elevated to an office without any prior indication that they were headed in that direction. Hagam Shaul Banivi'im. Shaul completes his prophecy and he comes home and his uncle turns to him and he says, where have you been? Shaul says, we went to look for the donkeys. We came to Shemuel. Shaul's uncle says, what did he tell you? And he says, he told us that the donkeys were found, but he did not reveal to his uncle the matter of the kingship. Did Shemuel tell Shaul not to reveal it? Was Shaul being humble and modest in not revealing the true nature of Shemuel's words? Shemuel now gathers the people to Mitzpah. And once again, he reminds them how God had taken them out of the land of Egypt and saved them from their oppressors and how they had in turn rejected God and betrayed him by asking for a king. And nevertheless, says Shemuel, now the moment has arrived for the king to be revealed. It's a very inauspicious coronation. But again, Shemuel wants to inject a heavy note of caution into the proceedings. Having a king is a potentially dangerous development. And we have to be careful as we move forward. That's the implication. A selection by lot is then undertaken. The tribe of Benjamin is singled out. The clan of the Matri is singled out from which Shaul hails. Finally, Shaul is singled out, but he's nowhere to be found. And they inquired of God, is there someone else that's supposed to be singled out? And God responds, Hinehu nechba el hakelim, verse number 22, Behold, he is hiding himself among the baggage. We would say in modern English, he's in the coat room where everybody dropped their bags and their coats when they came to the assembly of proclaiming the king. So here is a bizarre moment. The people have been waiting for the king to be appointed and revealed. And Shemuel has gathered them for that purpose. And even as the lot falls on Shaul, he's nowhere to be found. Not because he didn't show up, but because he is in hiding from the appointment. So here we learn something about Shaul's character. He is a humble man. He is a modest individual. 
He did not ask for kingship or the glory associated with it, and he will only don the mantle reluctantly. Perhaps a larger message for leadership. Some people chomp at the bit, waiting to be appointed or to appoint themselves to leadership roles. They don't necessarily make the best leaders in the end because they have their own interests in mind. Sometimes a leader is appointed who didn't ask for the job, but they're the most suited to do it well. Shaul's appointment is that kind of a moment. So even as he is in hiding from the mission which is placed before him, he will be brought forth, and sure enough, he is presented to the people. And once again, the text reports what was reported at the beginning of chapter 9. Head and shoulders, he was taller than anyone else. Again, is this a physical description? Is this a description of character? Is it perhaps both? Shemuel told the people, you now see whom God has chosen. There is none like him among all of the people. The people cried out, long live the king. A few small details remain to be attended to. Shemuel repeats the matter of the king's law, as we discussed earlier. And these things are written in the book, we are told in verse 25, and placed before God as witness, presumably, just as Shemuel had warned the people earlier. And Shemuel sends the people home. Now we have a king. The choice has been made. The selection has been made. People can now go home in the comfort that, in fact, they are being governed by a king. But strikingly, in verse 26, Shaul also goes home to his house in Giv'ah, although he is followed by people who were inspired by God to help him lead the people. But there were base people in verse 27 who said very disparagingly, my Yoshi Enuzeh, is this guy going to save us? Who is this upstart? Who is this person? And they humiliated him and spoke disparagingly of him. They did not offer any kind of gift or tribute. So clearly, although Shaul has been selected, there are many Israelites that are unsure of his fitness for rule. And it's clear why. Because he's humble and he's modest and he's quiet and he's unassuming and he does not present himself as a charismatic leader of Israel. And so the base people reject him outright. This guy cannot possibly save us, not from the Philistines or anyone else. Shaul's response to this humiliation, however, is very telling. And with that, the chapter ends, he pretended that he didn't hear it. He ignores it. He lets it slide completely. So if there's something about Shaul which is revealed in this chapter, it is his sterling nobility of character. Here is a person who is chosen to lead the people, 
And even if some of those people do not believe that he has the right stuff, he will not be discouraged. But he also will not be drawn into the kind of mudslinging that will only create more divisiveness. Truly a lesson for our time. Next time we'll continue with chapter 11 to see how in fact Shaul now rises to the occasion. He has been officially designated and appointed as king, but he has yet to demonstrate that he has what it takes to rule over Israel. That will be the subject of chapter 11. Thank you again for listening to Crises and Kings with Rabbi Michael Hatton, a production of Parties North America in partnership with the Corn Podcast Network. If you liked what you just heard, please give a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening.